Welcome to Legal Lens, a DebtWire podcast on legal issues impacting restructuring and the distressed industry at large. My name is Andy Serby. Today, I'm glad to be joined for our first episode of 2024 by Justin Alberto of Cold Shots. He's worked representing committees in some big name cases spanning pharmaceuticals and retail, such as Purdue Pharma, Mallinckrodt, and JCPenney, plus debtor side work that includes Advantage Rent-A-Car and True Religion, among others. Justin also brings trial and litigation experience to court with him as a bankruptcy attorney, plus a mediator certification from the Delaware Bankruptcy Court, giving him a hand in virtually every form of dispute resolution available to his corporate clients. Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy. It's good to be here. Let's start off a little bit with you. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into law and how you found your way to specifically a bankruptcy specialty? I think my story is hopefully a little unique. And I say hopefully because it involves me not having done very well in my original major when I went to college, which was sports biology. I had always wanted to be a, a sports surgeon uh, focusing on you know knee and shoulder industries. Let's just say that 19-year-old uh, me and the subject of organic chemistry uh, didn't really go well together. So after uh, a semester uh, in uh, sports biology, uh, I decided to uh, make a move into uh, the business major. From then, I started learning a little bit about uh, business law in undergrad, and the uh, rest is history. Great. That means we actually have something in common as a fellow reformed bio major. <laughs> I guess it's not all that unique then <laughs> in my story. Or maybe the two of us are just the unique ones. So once you got into bankruptcy, can you tell us about getting the cold shots and kind of how you constructed your practice at the firm specifically? I started in bankruptcy. I was I was hired by um, my former firm in, in 2007 to commence in, in 2008 after I graduated law school. And um, for those around in our practice back in in that time period, you were not getting hired unless you were willing to come in as a corporate restructuring associate. I was excited. I thought I would always be a chancery litigator. I quickly learned that uh, bankruptcy uh, was right for me in the sense that uh, there's a lot of picking up the hood, trying to see you know what how to make a company healthy again, at least from the debtor side, right? When I came to call shots, I was uh, Made 13 or 14 years into my career, um, I had an established practice that I brought here with me uh, from my former firm. This firm, uh, Cole Shots, welcomed me with open arms, as well as my closest friend, Seth Van Alten, who came from a, a former firm and joined our New York office at the same time that I joined our Wilmington office. At that time, I had recently become co-counsel to the Purdue Pharma um, General and Secured Creditors Committee with uh, my uh, friends at uh, Aiken Gump. And um, Cole Schatz was uh, very uh, receptive to uh, you know that matter uh, coming over after I joined. Um, it eventually did come over uh, shortly after I joined. In the years that followed that, kind of spearheaded um, alongside of Aiken, uh, the investigation into the Sackler family, which uh, was uh, you know, coordinated uh, here at, uh, at my firm, uh, which included the, <laughs> us delving through a database filled with uh, hundreds of thousands, if, if not more than a million documents um, over the course of several years. And from there, we were able to not only strike what we believe is a fair settlement in Purdue Pharma, I know that that's up for deliberation still at, uh, at SCOTUS, but um, we were able to um, parlay that into representations of uh, the Mallinckrodt Official Opioid Committee as well. So I've had some good experience uh, on the claimant side in mass tort cases, and uh, as well as uh, a lot of debtor work that we've done here at Cold Shot since I've been here. It's really a great, great place to uh, build and grow a practice. Yeah, absolutely. And we're definitely going to get back to that. But 
Continuing from the Cole Shots kind of thread here, according to our data here at DebtWire, Cole Shots was near the top of our mandate list for kind of special engagements like special counsel, conflicts counsel, and also local counsel this past year. So can you tell us a little bit about how the firm, you know, ends up at the top of that list and how you approach those roles as opposed to, say, a general committee counsel or a lead debtor counsel role? I think the answer is simple. Our, our greatest resource here at Cole Shots is our people. Um, our attorneys are not only well-versed in the law, but they have great business acumen. And the combination of the experience that we have as counsel or co-counsel to large companies in Chapter 11, on top of the business acumen that a lot of our attorneys bring to the table, it makes us a very practical and efficient uh, solution to a problem. We oftentimes come in as uh, counsel in sticky situations and oftentimes are relied upon to come up with paths to resolution for those sticky situations. Uh, And to the extent that we can't, we have a a great reputation for being able to litigate those matters through the various courts. So I I think to recap, it's, it's really our people. They are our greatest resource. Cole Schatz is known for how do I phrase this? It would are people staying here for we're, we're lifers, right? I mean, I know that I'm not. I came from a, a prior place, but it is not uncommon to walk up and down the halls of our offices here at Cole Shots and find somebody that's been here 30, 35 years. Um, there's a way that we do our business. There's a way that we go about our business, and it's consistent throughout all of our offices. And I think very well respected by the courts and certainly our clients. Absolutely, and those kinds of roles are also somewhat unique in that they require, not that this whole practice doesn't require a lot of agility, but some extra agility, let's say, because say you get hired on as a conflicts counsel, you're often taking kind of a reactive role to an issue that has arisen for the uh, for the lead counsel. Like, how do you handle kind of parachuting into an issue on six days notice, let's say? <laughs> six days would be a blessing. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're right. You use the word, Andy, agility. I I actually can't think of a better adjective for it. And the agileness of our team, again, has to be guided by its experience and other matters that came before, you know, the current issue at hand. It'd be very difficult for us to be as agile as conflicts counsel or efficiency counsel if we didn't have large case experience. And when we talk to clients and potential clients, one of the things at the top of our list is there's no issue too big or too small for cold shots. Our rates are more regional rates than national rates. Um, So you you get a built-in efficiency on our rate structure compared to some of the larger firms in our industry. But our attorney's experience is second to none. Um, We've appeared in every major jurisdiction that there is on both the creditor side and and the debtor side. So there's not a playbook we haven't seen. And without that, it would be very hard to dive into a situation where somebody tells us, oh, no, we have a conflict. Can you resolve this through mediation in the next six days? Uh, Again, six days would be a blessing. Sometimes it happens on less notice, but um, that's what we're here for. And those are the opportunities that we welcome with open arms. Absolutely. Now let's get back to the uh, committee representations because we spent a little bit of time on stuff like Purdue and Mallinckrodt earlier, kind of wrapping up the the unofficial committees in those cases. So here, let's return to the issue of uh, committee representations because we talked a little bit about Purdue earlier. Obviously, tort committees and unofficial creditors committees are not exactly the same in cases that involved involve mass torts but they will often have some common interests. So I think we can kind of talk about them together. Like, can we talk a little bit about what makes cases like Purdue and Mallinckrodt unique when you approach representing a statutory committee? Sure. I I think the claimants are what make it unique. Uh, In my experience, in cases that uh, involve widespread corporate harm, 
particularly corporate harm caused by products to individuals um, who use those products. Those individuals who ultimately comprise claimants committees have a voice and their voice needs to be heard. They have a desire for it to be heard and, and it's it's very good for it to be heard because it's critical to the narrative that the court hears about why this company is in bankruptcy and, and why we're doing what we're doing to pursue whatever remedy it is or whatever settlement it, it may be at the time. And to put a finer point on that, if you take bankruptcy out of it, right, and company A creates product Y, product Y causes widespread harm to individuals across the country and across the world. Those individuals outside of bankruptcy would have their day in court. They'd be able to tell their story to a judge. In some instances, they'd be able to tell it to a jury. Um, and they would have ultimately a, a final arbiter of uh, their claim against the company for this you know, defective or harmful product. In bankruptcy, that, that's not always the case. Bankruptcy is a, in my view, bankruptcy is a, in bankruptcy, that's not always the case. Typically, bankruptcy cases are fast moving, they're fast paced, and lots of issues are resolved in a very short time frame. And oftentimes, claimants do not have the benefit of, for instance, you know, bellwether trials or a trial even on their own individual harm. So in, in instances like Purdue, where our committee fought for and was ultimately able to achieve in a settlement, what I'll call a meet and greet with the Sackler family, whereby, you know, 20 or so individual claimants who suffered harm from OxyContin in one way or another, either directly or having a family member impacted by the effects of opioids, got to speak directly to the Sackler family and tell their story in open court. Not only is that important to the narrative, as I previously said, it's also, it's consistent with what we view as justice in this country, right? Your story is supposed to be heard. You're supposed to have a podium to tell the world what wrong was caused to you. And I think the, the short answer to your question, Andy, is, is the claimants. That's what makes it unique. Um, you have to balance why we're here with their desire and more important the world's need to hear their stories and how far down the road do you go with those stories you know really depends on the facts of the case but it's it's ultimately the claimants that make uh, the mass tort cases unique and and much different from say for instance representing the jc penny committee right absolutely and there's another element to mass tort cases, which is they have a higher degree of emotionality or human stakes, let's let's say. And I think that that's got to be a major issue that you have to contend with, because when you're on the phone with these people, it's not just about money. It's about it's about human cost, human life, whether someone's sick or gone. Yeah, I, I couldn't say it better myself. The emotionality that we felt in cases like Purdue and Mallinckrodt the emotionality that we felt in cases like Purdue in Mallinckrodt, it's simply not capable of being recreated. For instance, in a retail company environment, our phone rang countless times a day for several years and in fact still does with folks who have stories about how they or loved ones were harmed by opioids. And it would be not only a, a, an injustice to the claimants, but it would be unconscionable to take that emotionality out of the case. The case should involve those stories. It should involve that level of emotionality. 
right? You can't just set it aside. It has to be part of that comprehensive approach to the representation and also handling your committee members. It's part of the fabric of any deal that we've ever caught. It has to be. Going back to a little bit of the nuts and bolts of this stuff, the mass tort bankruptcy thing is a really hot issue these days because we see more and more companies, uh, whether it's a Texas two-step or just trying to wrangle exposure, ending up in Chapter 11. You have some litigation and trial experience, which is something that not all bankruptcy attorneys have. So can you talk a little bit about how your litigation background kind of informs your approach to these cases? Absolutely. I, I think it's critical to have um, some form of litigation background and, and folks surrounding you that know how to litigate hotly contested issues. Otherwise, threats of litigation or, or threats of causes of action in any settlement or uh, any settlement discussions or in any uh, mediation or arbitration, they ring hollow. You have to be able to back it up with the actual skill set. And that's one thing that call shots, I, I think we're so fortunate. We have some best in class bankruptcy litigators. And in my view, we are spoiled by how many good bankruptcy litigators, full-time bankruptcy lawyers that litigate full-time for a living. That is something that sets us apart, makes us very unique in this field. And I think is, is also part of the reason why we've been able to achieve some very favorable settlements for our clients. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I want to pivot a little bit to uh, retail, which is another sector you've done quite a bit of work in, and we touched on it a little bit as a juxtaposition to the uh, mass tort stuff. But uh, you had committee engagements with uh, JCP, JCPenney, Claire's, Brookstone. So can you tell us a little bit about how, from your perspective, the distress in the retail sector has played out the past couple of years between COVID, inflation and everything, and how you kind of see the sector's outlook for the next year or so. Sure, absolutely. We were counsel to the Pier 1 committee when COVID broke out. In fact, uh, we, I had just gotten to Cole Shots and um, you know that company was, was ultimately doomed uh, as a result of COVID. On the other side of the spectrum, we had uh, True Religion in its second bankruptcy. I was uh, lead counsel to the company in its uh, chapter 22. We filed it during COVID. And ultimately, that company has not only survived, but has thrived. And I, I saw recently notes of uh, uh, reports of a dividend recap that has the company valued hundreds of millions of dollars more than it was valued, uh, certainly when it came to my doorstep. Distress in retail is interesting in the last year. We've not seen a ton of retail hit Chapter 11 in the last year. And we didn't see a ton of it at the end of COVID. There were certainly government subsidies that propped up a lot of companies. There were a lot of landlord concessions during COVID um, that propped up companies. I will say, I think it's coming. Uh, we're hearing more and more that it's coming. I think, you know, big box retail is, it's not going anywhere, but it does to some degree need to be restructured. And some of the folks on our radar, I, I would be shocked if they're not on your radar as well, Andy. I, I think retail is is coming. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that all kind of dovetails off of obviously e-commerce is a whole is a whole separate thing, but I think that there were some vague reports of, you know, Black Friday being a little bit underwhelming this year. So, there's definitely kind of dark portents for the sector, I would say. I went to the mall. I'll give you one example. I went to the mall, uh, my local mall here in Delaware, a Brookfield-owned property called Christiana Mall. And um, on Saturday, uh, which talking to you now, it's December 19th. So this was a couple days ago, maybe not even 10 days before Christmas. Um, Saturday, it was packed. On Sunday, nine days before Christmas, it was a ghost town. I was shocked that people were not in the mall, particularly eight days before Christmas. So there's still stores that are boarded up. There's still lots of vacancies in the malls. And 
I, I think you're going to see some more with a need to go through the restructuring process, whether they end up in a liquidation or restructured is, is remains to be seen and likely dependent on the level of support that they receive uh, from their various constituencies. And I think that another big issue is going to be the real estate element of it, because I have this feeling that as commercial real estate gets into a tougher and tougher place, landlords are going to be less willing to consider say, lease renegotiations because they're already bordering on upside down. And that in turn will make restructuring harder for their tenants, which is largely retail. Yeah, 100%. I I think you'll see, you could see landlords, um, smaller landlords run into financial distress. Absolutely. And that will be so the trickle down effect will be to those who were expecting concessions that ultimately can't get them because the landlord is, is incapable of giving them. I've heard 2023, the previous year as a, uh, or this past year, when this, when uh, when would this will come out? Is kind of like a year of waiting, where we might see things kind of pick up cross sector as twenty twenty four goes on, and we kind of break the holding pattern and see what the Fed will do with interest rates. So maybe that this is all just playing into that. So I think we're set up for a really interesting year in twenty twenty four. I think we are as well, and I, I can tell you that we in house here at Cole Shots we're we're very busy, and we have been extremely busy for the duration of 2023 and it's picking up even more now. So just judging by what I see going on in our hallways, um, I think the prognosis that there's more to come in 2024 is accurate. Last thing that I wanted to touch on is uh, up top, we mentioned that you have a little bit of experience with uh, with mediation in Delaware, and that obviously plays into the mass tort stuff pretty heavily. Purdue had a massive mediation effort. So can you tell us a little bit about your kind of experience with ADR mediation and also potentially arbitration to whatever degree you've experienced it as it plays into deal making in bankruptcy? hundred percent. I'm happy to. I've had a great um, ADR experience uh, in my time as a, a bankruptcy practitioner. Um, most recently, it was in arbitration in a hotel case. Uh, I spoke on this topic at ABI Winter Leadership earlier this month, and I have found um, mediation and arbitration in both the mass tort and non-mass tort environments to be particularly effective. I advocate for them as opposed to in-court fighting. I think that we can do the the trading of blows that we need to with our adversaries in a more civil environment, in a mediation or an arbitration, at a more cost-effective price for our clients. Ultimately, bankruptcy is about consensus. My mentor told me that uh, when I started in this industry 16, 17 years ago, whenever it was, 15 years ago. And uh, I have that has rung true throughout my career. Bankruptcy is about consensus. It continues to be about consensus. Bankruptcy will not work. Chapter 11 will not work without consensus. And ultimately, that consensus oftentimes is reached after fighting aggressively with one another and your adversaries. That fighting in court is extraordinarily expensive. It can be expensive out of court in an ADR context as well, but I have found it to be more streamlined. And I will say that there is an excellent bench of former judges now that have left their their seats as judges uh, throughout the country that are doing just amazing work as mediators in very complicated matters. They get up to speed quickly. They understand the business dynamics and they channel their experience from sitting as judges to ultimately helping parties reach consensus in ADR in an ADR forum. I think it's terrific. In fact, if I were part of a, a national rules committee, I would try to find ways to incorporate ADR more into bankruptcy. I, I think it is a very useful tool. 
Perfect. I don't think that we can put a better button on this whole thing than bankruptcy is about consensus. That's a good slogan. With that, I think I'm all out of questions. So Justin, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks a lot for taking the time to share your thoughts and to help us kick off what will be a big year by both of our predictions in 2024. Andy, thank you for the opportunity and happy new year, everyone. And thank you to all of our listeners for checking out this episode of Legal Lens. As always, you can subscribe or download every episode via Spotify or Apple and find thousands of articles with insights, research, and more from our team at DebtWire.com. We'll see you next time.